The Highlander Podcast is brought to you by Outdoor Product Design and Development, a four-year undergraduate degree focused on training the next generation of product creators for the sports and outdoor industries. Learn more at opdd.usu.edu. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Utah Outdoor Association, a business association focused on elevating Utah's outdoor industry through educational programming and events. Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. On this episode of the Highlander Podcast... We continue our History of Gear series with a conversation with Bruce Johnson about the history of Rivendell Mountain Works. We talk about the influence of climber Don Jensen, the Jensen Pack, and the Bomb Shelter Tent. Welcome back, everyone. This is Chase. And joining me again for another History of Gear series is Bruce Johnson, uh, founder of the History of Gear Project, gear historian extraordinaire. Um, and, And today I'm excited. We're we're, we're talking about a, a company that was on a previous History of Gear series. Um, we, we dove into the history of Rivendell Mountain Works in a previous episode with Don Wittenberger and, and Eric Hardy. And it was awesome to hear their experiences being in the middle of, of you know, bringing this company back to life and, and uh, excited to talk with you a little bit uh, and dive into the history from your perspective. Um, and, you know, you have, you have artifacts and and knowledge from that time and, and have a personal connection to the brand as well. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I've visited Don at his home, which is full of old sewing machines and patterns and things brought back from uh, Rivendell. And I've been up in the mountains at the little cottage where all the new packs are being made now uh, by Eric Hardy. So yeah, I have personal connection and I have a Rivendell pack of my own. I used to have two. You can kind of see it there on the chair behind me. Yeah. And uh, I have some other little products that they that they made uh, in their efforts to make enough money to survive. So well, yeah. To, well, I was going to say to to start, I I this is a company I had never heard of you know, when I got into working in this industry and been, you know, been in it for a couple of years and, and then, you know, starting to, to do this project, that's where I discovered it, um, was through your work. Um, and, you know, I imagine some people are, are thinking, well, why are we doing two episodes on such a small company that I've never heard of before? Um, maybe you could shed some light on that. And wh- why do you think it's so important that we talk about, so, you know, a company that, you know, seemingly small, um, but, you know, I, I think you'd agree it has some lasting impacts and influence. Yes. Uh, well, it's very true, of course, that Rivendell was and is a very small company. I like to think that it has a certain mystique that many other companies lack. Hollybar, well, that's just the name of the founders, right? Jerry, just the name of the founders. North Face, well, that's a little more spicy, but, you know, that's still not anything that really stands you on end. 
Sierra Designs, that's pretty pedestrian in a way. Rivendell, oh my God. Anybody who has any sense of Lord of the Rings and that whole almost a tradition anymore uh, after all the movies that were produced about it. Rivendell, that's special. That's mystical. That brand has something going on that others perhaps lack. I kind of wanted to go through some pictures because I'm kind of a visual person. Some pictures of Rivendell and Rivendell gear and, and talk through those a little bit as we go along. So first, the Rivendell label. If you look at it, just big picture, you go, huh, that's interesting script there. Why did they choose a script like that? It's my belief that it goes to the heart of the brand, uh, which is Lord of the Rings, Tolkien. That's Elvish script. And if you look way in the corner here, it's a little hard to see it in this, but there's little mushrooms there, which again, is that something from the world of Middle Earth or is that something else? It's hard to know. Um, it's easy to talk about the companies that, the big ones, the name brands, right? It's easy to, to go and, and kind of dive into that history and, and learn about those companies that you see day to day. But I think the work that you do is especially interesting because you dive into some of the forgotten brands or those that have come and gone and, and maybe haven't gotten the attention that, that they deserve. Um, all these companies are a part of a larger, a larger history and they all deserve some kind of attention and, and notice and, and they all contribute something to this larger conversation of the history of gear, right? No matter how big or small. Um, so I think it's important that we, we talk about even the small companies um, and there's lessons to be learned there. So uh, I know you, you and I both share that passion, but um, maybe we can start back um, for the namesake of like the core product of the company, right? The Jensen pack um, and talk about the individuals involved in the creation of, of this product that, that uh, Rivendell ended up creating and, and has had a lasting impact. Who are some of these individuals that Don Jensen and, and some others that we'll get into that contributed or, or made this product what it is? Don Jensen was a climber. He was a California boy, um, graduated high school in 1961. Um, Career-wise, he went on to be a mathematician with a PhD. But uh, early on, he was a mega climber, uh, cut his teeth in the Sierras, um, did a lot of solo cross-country skiing in the high Sierras, and developed a need for a pack that would cling to his, his back while doing all kinds of uh, acrobatic, let's say, cross-country skiing high-level cross-country skiing. And as a rock climber in the Sierras, he also felt the need for a pack that was not like the summit packs of the time, which, yeah, they were better than the early, early packs, but they still were like lumps on your back that would shift right when you're trying to make a delicate move on the rock. 
Yeah. And who, who was making those at the time? What, what kinds of products and gear was out mm. there? Well, Summit Packs, uh, uh, by the mid-60s, there were a number of, of them being made, and earlier than that even. Uh, in the 50s, Holly Bar, for instance, was making really good ones, and uh, Alpine Designs was making really good ones, and you know there were a lot of them uh, out there of that design. And so Don Jensen, like so many of the pioneers, he just was into improving things. He was a creative guy and he didn't think, oh, well, this pack has a few things I don't like about it, but I'll just keep wearing it. No, he, he, I'm going to improve this. And he developed this compartmentalized design, which indeed does just cling to your back like crazy. And I've used mine for cross-country skiing and cross-country, you know, ski backpacking and backcountry skiing, basically. And <clears throat> the pack that he designed was small and made out of just packed cloth. It was quite small. It didn't have room for a sleeping bag in the bottom compartment. Uh, it was kind of like an oversized summit pack, really, and was quite lightweight. And again, it, its design function was cling your back like crazy. Don't get in my way. And worked wonderfully in that way. Uh, Don Jensen was uh, eventually a, a climbing instructor uh, uh, in the Palisades of California and climbed with some relatively famous people, one of whom was Doug Robinson. And the history is a little unclear in here, but apparently uh, Jensen's pack design was known to Doug Robinson, who passed it on to Larry Horton, who, who also was a climber. But again, I'm not clear whether Horton was a Palisades-affiliated guy. But anyway, they, we're talking about climbers here. Jensen was a climber, that Robinson was a climber, Larry Horton was a climber. And so the, uh, the pedigree is pretty true. Right. That's where the, the history, it's, it's kind of been a little fuzzy as I've been trying to sort through it myself, you know, in talking with Don, Don Wittenberger, who had at, kind of around the same time had started the Yak Works, right? And had the Yak Pack. And um, you kind of have all these individuals um, who had their hands on this design and, and it, it was never really clear to me how did it get to where it is today. So interesting, somewhere in there, it, it eventually got to, to Larry Horton who um, started to make it commercially, a, a commercial product. Did Don Jensen ever have aspirations of, of commercializing it or was he, he just made the product for himself and then eventually the design got to Larry Horton who made the pro made a product that he was actually selling to people never wanted that uh larry horton paid him royalties hmm. and so there was a business connection in that respect oh interesting yeah that's the piece that i hadn't heard is that connection of and kind of honoring where that original design came from yeah yeah so, so this is all kind of happening in kind of I mean, Don Jensen's doing his thing throughout the 60s. Rivendell officially starts 1971, right, with Larry Horton. 
Yeah. Um, that's kind of the era that we're talking about. Many other um, very worthy companies, outdoor companies starting around that same time frame, Snow Lion in the Bay Area, for instance, and Wilderness Experience and Clitterworks and all, a lot of companies uh, at that time, which was one reason I believe that the company Rivendell finally failed. There, there was a lot of competition out there. Right. Yeah, Don Wittenberger mentioned to me, he said, when we started talking about the Jensen Pack and the origins of it, and he, you know, he liked to say that, um, you know, at that time, the soft pack wasn't one person, right? It was a lot of different people all over the country who were kind of making their own unique, you know, they had their unique take on what a soft pack was. Um, so it sounds like they're, I mean, with all these companies popping up, everyone kind of had their own idea of what, a soft pack would look like? Um. I guess I would have to say that um, the, the Jensen design was probably the first really viable example of a soft pack that uh, had that quality of clinging to one's back so well and having some load transfer to the hips. Um, and then it kind of exploded, uh, yeah, um, for a while. And then the industry moved on, um, except, right. for, except for the revival of Rivendell uh, that came along uh, many, many years later. The Rivendell design consists of two two tubes here packed full of stuff resting on, and there's a partition resting on a bottom compartment, which is designed to hold a sleeping bag. And so in some ways it's uh, reminiscent of Jerry Cunningham's uh, idea of the compartmentalized teardrop pack that hung close to your back. In a sense, it has three compartments instead of Jerry Cunningham's two compartments and of course it's a much much larger pack and so there's weight up here and it transfers here to the bottom and then there's a hip belt that gives you some good load transfer and the whole affair hangs to your back like a bug it just cannot be dislodged bushwhacking or cross-country skiing or uh, climbing even. This is my Rivendell pack, which happens to be the largest one they made, the uh, Dr. Expando. I bought it uh, from Larry in, uh, in uh, his church. <laughs> the the uh, factory, whatever you want to call it, was in an old church in uh, Victor, Idaho. And you can see this comfortable corduroy and the straps and the zippers and so forth. Uh, the blue things are to compress the pack uh, up and down in terms of size. This became a really popular design that became quite copied for a while. Wilderness Experience had one that they frankly just came right out and called it the ROR pack for ripoff Rivendell. 
Uh, Chenard had a similar one called the Ultimate Thule. Right. So what was Larry's background? You mentioned that he, he had been with the North Face, and I, had, I didn't know that. What, was he a designer there? Was that where he got his experience? I don't know, and, and I certainly hope that uh, you're able to uh, have one of these with Larry Horton. Yeah, I'd love uh, to. Because there's a lot there I don't know. I had very little actual contact with Larry. Uh, a few emails and um, some pictures exchanged and that kind of thing. He was a climber, and he actually was a, a climber. Uh, there's a, a site you can go to off my web. Uh, off my web pages uh, that show him uh, climbing some very terrible, horrible, scary looking stuff in the Tetons uh, while he was running his company in the valley far below. So we do know that in the days of the beginning of, of uh, Rivendell, we had Larry Horton looking like this. Um, Larry sent me this picture of himself for reasons of his own. He could have said a more recent one, of course, but this was how he said he looked when he began the company back in about 1970 in the Seattle area uh, under the uh, sponsorship, really, of some partners who were more partners who uh, provided the financial support. And he was the actual gear guy and designer. Uh, there's other interesting um, threads that go in there in terms of who might have influenced him. I have some other um, pictures and some content. Uh, he was from the Seattle area. Well, okay, that's where the company started. Well, early winters began there too. And there's some very early pictures uh, of an airplane flight where some early winters people are going out to visit Larry there in the Tetons and see what he's got going. And aboard that flight is also this guy who became a, a, a custom pack maker of, of renown in the Northwest. Uh, so, there were influences. He wasn't just like doing this all alone, I think, to get back to your question there. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's important because I that's something I didn't really know is where did where does his influences come from? It sounds like came it came from a lot of different places. But um, I, I'm curious, the primary influence, I guess, for the brand, obviously, is Tolkien. Right. And I've always been curious why that. Um, and I know, you know, that time period, the books, you know, were around and, and were popular. And it, obviously it wasn't what it is today with, with the movies and everything. Um, what, what was it about that for him? Did you ever, did he ever share that with you? Um, why, why the influence of, of Rivendell? They kind of fully embraced that identity in the brand. Yep. Again, I hope you can get to Larry himself. Uh, He turned me, Larry Horton, he turned me on to Tolkien, really, because when I became very interested in Rivendell and Rivendell Packs and then drove out to, to uh, uh, Victor, Idaho and, and visited, uh, actually visited there and bought a pack and 
anyway, uh, that kind of inspired me to uh, read Lord of the Rings. And that's where I got into Lord of the Rings. Wow. Well, that, yeah, hopefully I can ask him because I've always been curious and I've seen pictures of, you know, him in his, his, his shop. I imagine it's the one in Victor um, and seen sketches of Elvish that was written out. And um, so I'm, I'm just curious about, you know, why. And I, so I'll have to ask him if I can ever get that chance. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, those pictures are from the, the, the church. I've seen them too. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, do you mind sharing a little bit? I guess we talked a little bit on the timeline and we touched on this with Don Wittenberger as well, but company starts in 1971. Imagine launches with the Rivendell or the, the Jensen. Um, what are the other significant milestones leading up to them moving to Victor? None that I know of. Again, yeah. uh, bomb, bomb shelter during that time or was that at, was that, they introduced the bomb shelter in 74, as I recall. Okay. And that like their second product. Uh, but that bomb shelter had been, um, cooking, uh, ever since 1963, at least when, uh, uh, an early prototype of it went up Mount McKinley, part of the climbing party that did this incredible climb on, on McKinley that had never been done before. They were part of the Harvard mountaineering club. Oh, right. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> a prototype of, of that bomb shelter tent as early as 63 there uh, was being tested under very severe conditions. Right. So the bomb shelter had been around and been around. And I guess uh, Larry Horton kind of got around to um, adding it to the lineup in uh, about 74. Right. Well, and Don Jensen passed away. Was that 73? Yes. So that's interesting timing um, that, you know, maybe he worked something out um, with Don's, Don's widow. I imagine, is it Joan? Joan. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe worked something, who knows, um, to, to be able to, to use that design or something. I, another, I, another question I'd love to ask. Um, and then from there, the company, you know, eventually moves to Victor. When was that? They moved in. Uh, they weren't in uh, Snoqualmie, Washington, very long, a year, maybe a year and a half, and then out out to Idaho to you, the Tetons uh, you, in '72. So you have <clears throat> at this point pictures of Don Jensen, the inventor of the Rivendell pack and you have him standing beside one of the very early versions that he and his climbing friend, Chris, whose name I can't say goat C or something, um, that they had been using uh, actually from the early sixties, various prototypes. By the time that Larry Horton got a hold of it, um, it turned into a tent that looked like this. The famous bomb shelter with rain fly, without rain fly. Larry Horton himself was, was quite the designer and the design, the geometries and the, the details of this rain fly are spectacular. 
so <clears throat> I have a lot of statistics and facts about the bomb shelter. Um, but what I wanted to really say about it is that the two key products of Rivendell were the Jensen Pack and that bomb shelter tent. The company was based upon those. They were passionate as could be about those two things. And in the history of gear, that was, is their main contributions. There were other products, um, but they based their hopes upon good sales of, of the packs and the tent. And in here, we've got some statistics. They produced in the end something like 350 of the tents and a thousand or so of the packs. So they were always a very small company uh, based on kind of a cottage industry model. Uh, certainly never tried to outsource it to Asia or anything like that. So this little bitty company started in Seattle in terms of its business and its connections with its donors, but it swiftly moved out into the foothills of the Cascades to a little town called Snoqualmie and was there for a year or two back around 1970-71 and then made the big move out to the Tetons, except to the west side of the Tetons, the side that nobody knows about. And they took up residence in a little church there, an old church, and that became their, their production center for the most part. They had Larry doing designing. He was an ex-North Face guy. And <clears throat> There were two women in particular who were wizard sewers to, to sew up these bomb shelters because the, the sewing challenges were extreme. The other employees didn't really want to touch it. You could make so many errors in the catenary cuts and just a lot of these details in this tent are extraordinary. I had one uh, for a while loaned to me and uh, was just blown away by the design and the, and the exquisiteness of the reinforcements and the, and the sewing. They had the other products that they added that were pretty worthy, I think, uh, but have just evaporated into history. The, uh, <clears throat> this thing, <laughs> this thing was just a work of genius, this special lightweight filled with a synthetic insulation mitten that they called the hot tamale uh, really works oh my god the concept i get into it on my website but uh, again it's those two main products that uh, really uh, have a place in the history of gear that i think is very worthy and also produced a uh, specialized kind of a gator overboot thing called the elf boot again for for skiing in below zero temperatures in the tetons and i've got a sample 
so <clears throat> the little company was this is where I get into Lord of the Rings. Uh, they actually uh, called themselves uh, and, and the employees elves. Uh, in 1975, they held themselves a, an elf picnic, complete with, uh, I believe it was called Billy Beer, the stuff that the, uh, the, that the hobbits had in, back in the uh, hobbit town. And even their setting there, um, in the mountains there, uh, the Tetons right nearby, it, it is so reminiscent of Rivendell itself in the books. Uh, the, the kingdom of Rivendell, the high elves, the, the encircling mountain walls, uh, it's, it's all so, so much like Rivendell itself. I've uh, got a... a Elvish name even for Don Wittenberger, and he would have to comment on whether it really uh, uh, was uh, appointed or or whether it came to him later on. The Lord of the Rings influence again off the uh, one of the. Uh, this actually is a poster that I have that I can't find today, but uh, this is I can't say the name, but it's very Tolkien. It's like. Gwayher, the uh, Windlord Eagle who comes and rescues Gandalf off the top of the tower. Uh, they were really into this. And it, it to me, inspires uh, the idea that this is a little company that was escaping uh, to the mountains into sort of an alternative universe almost, uh, full of mysticism and wonder. Uh, they're at the base of the Tetons, escaping what was going on in the world at that time, which was uh, Vietnam War, civil rights protests, impeachment of Richard Nixon, with civil rights in Vietnam and all that stuff going on and the rise of the environmental movement starting in there too. Um, it was a it was a fertile time for uh, dreamers, uh, people who thought, oh, I can leave the corporate world, the big city world behind and go out into the mountains, kind of like Jerry Cunningham, two decades, two and a half decades before, I can go live in the mountains and make gear and, and have a wonderful life. And uh, Larry Horton's wonderful life seemed to be uh, influenced greatly by the, the mystical alternative universe of, of Rivendell, Lord of the Rings. It was cool. And yeah. of course, Larry being a climber, he's, he's perched himself right there at the base of the Tetons where you've got so much wonderful climbing to be done and cross-country skiing. So that's kind of how I see it. Yeah. No, but again, talk to Larry Horton, see yeah, if I'm all knows. wet. Yeah, right. Um, and then you mentioned a little bit kind of how you feel like the company, the company eventually goes bankrupt in 80. Yes. Um, and you, you just kind of see that as larger, you know, just a lot more competition out there. What, what do you feel like were some of the contributing factors? You know, uh, Don Wittenberger years ago uh, wrote me up a, 
his speculations, his ideas about how so many of these small businesses didn't make it, including Rivendell. And what made sense to me was uh, the, the great amount of competition going on and the fact that um, Rivendell didn't really advertise or try to get out into the, the main world very much. Uh, they had a catalog, of course, and a lot of word of mouth, kind of like how Hollybar got started, but it, you know, they had so much more competition at that time. Uh, they were also making, the two main products were very labor intensive pieces, extremely difficult to produce. And you couldn't sell them really for, for what, what labor you put into them. And he paid good, good uh, wages, I hear. So it was a difficult thing. To, to make the company a go and uh, he had a uh, huge commitment to quality, uh, you know, hot cutting all the fabrics and, you know, just all of this stuff where you, you didn't take a pile of nylon this thick and go through it with a saw and it surged the seams to make, you know, hundreds and hundreds of packs. It was all hand done one at a time. So that's a difficult formula for success. And uh, Don says most companies like that, they have to bring in and start selling all kinds of knickknacks and, and um, garments and things like that if they're going to have uh, uh, an adequate income. Well, Larry wasn't doing that. Yeah, he and I talked about that same thing. He said, I think one of our problems or their problems was, is they, and same with the Yakworks, he said, is we were just making good stuff. And so people didn't have to come back to us. They bought one thing and they didn't need to come back because their, their gear lasted a long time. And that's, that's not really a recipe for success. Um, you know, exactly. Um, as a contrast, um, I always had a big thing about early winters too. And I bought their gear and I liked, I liked them. Their catalogs were just full of all kinds of knickknacks and strange things. Um, like the French bread knife with a little wood handle <laughs> that you could take on your camping trips. That was just one of many examples. And I still get emails from people hoping they can get one of those from early winters. And I have to tell them, well, the company's been gone for like almost 40 years. Uh, but early winters really had that down. Right. And they were very successful. Right. Yeah. That is a good contrast. Um, and then, yeah, so the company does go bankrupt, and then Don Wittenberger, who we, again we've talked to in a previous episode, um, ends up buying, you know, or acquiring all that through the bankruptcy court. Um, was that like right after bankruptcy, or had it been there for a little while? I he think came it was in right after. Immediate, yeah. And then he kind of held on to those things, and um, and then the company was revived in '06. Well, officially, uh, it, it was slumbering, but it wasn't dead for many years after Don got it. Yeah. In uh, 1983, he, Don tells this kind of funny story, um, or perhaps it was Eric telling the story about Don. Uh, 
Don was uh, seen loading a, a heavy industrial machine into the back of a little bitty Subaru, you might remember. Yeah. And, and Eric's Eric, time, Eric shared this, yeah. Yeah, and that's how they met. And it was right. completely by chance. It wasn't like, oh, I'm applying for a job to, to make packs with you or anything like that. It was just a chance meeting of two climbers. And that's yeah. how it got started. And then Eric would make a few packs periodically, uh, but it wasn't on any kind of a big time basis. Uh, Eric was still working up in the mountains at the ski resort uh, up there. And anyway, um, and 2006 really is when uh, they, they kicked it off into, uh, you might say, real production again and trying to get it marketed and, and having some success. I know both Don Wittenberger, the current owner of Rivendell, and I've been to his house and seen all that equipment he's got there, all the old sewing machines, and I've been up to Eric Hardy's little elf workshop up in the mountains, up uh, north of Seattle, and talked to him and seen him making packs. I dug up while I was doing the research for uh, this podcast today, I dug up from Don Wittenberger, something he probably doesn't even remember, uh, because it was over 10 years ago, he wrote me uh, extensively about how he got involved with the company and how Eric got involved with the company. And I thought this was pretty cute. It's from uh, over 10 years ago. Gives you a flavor of this, this company as, as it continued to survive even after it had had a bankruptcy uh, in 1980. So Don wrote to me, and this is back when things were just really getting started again with Rivendell. Eric and his wife have a log home they built themselves in the hills above Marysville, Washington. He has no power up there except by generator. He has a glass-topped cutting table, and I've loaned him a couple of sewing machines. And he comes over to my house, which is in Seattle, to sew the barbell patches, which requires a special tacking machine that I acquired when I bought Rivendell. He makes the packs one at a time and sells them by word of mouth. And believe me, he isn't making enough money to spit at from doing this. <clears throat> this is uh, from the front of Eric Hardy's uh, little factory in the, uh, in the forest, the rainforest of western Washington. A little tiny place out on the porch is the original Rivendell sign that came back from Victor, uh, Idaho after the bankruptcy when Don Wittenberger came to get it, uh, get the uh, the gear, the sewing machines, the designs, the patterns. As you can see it's a pretty large sign. It's in that same script. And it's got a mountain and it's got sunshine. And I'll talk to some of those, the meanings of some of those later. Uh, these are some new packs that uh, Eric Hardy has sewn up. All the Rivendell gear was done the old way by hand. And Eric Hardy here, this is Eric Harvey, Hardy. Um, Continues that tradition, takes great pride in it. This is an original Rivendell hot cutting tool that they're still using. 
This is an original Rivendell bar tacking machine, very specialized machine. And there's Don Wittenberger right there. What do you think it is about, you know, a brand like this and a product like the Jensen that has like left such an impact on people and kind of captured people's attention? And um, what is it that, you know, a company that's so small, you know, can have such a, a lasting impact on, on people? Again, I think they've got a, a dynamite brand and logo and the, and the, and and that appeal uh, is is big, and it's also has an appeal to real real mountaineers because Jensen was a famous climber in Alaska, basically. But uh, he did some major ascents. He's been written about uh, by David Roberts. Uh, let's see. That's a good one to read. Mountain of My Fear. Excellent writing, and you, you learn more about Don Jensen, uh, who was a very meticulous guy, uh, a mathematician. And uh, so that kind of mind was uh, behind creating these designs, experimenting and thinking and thinking things through and testing in real life. Uh, those are just important uh, elements of a brand that it has real credibility. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a, it's a fun story. Um, you know, these, these companies that find a way to stick around and, and, you know, people love them so much that they bring them back to life, like a whole bar, right. And on kind of a bigger scale or, you know, even a Jerry that's, that's still around. Um, it's, it's nice to see these, you know, these heritage brands, um, continue on and this is another you know maybe a smaller example but another good example of of a brand that people just develop a love for and a love for those products and and has found a way to to come back to life um which is fun to see um and, yeah and do you have any other thoughts on on the brand and uh, or the the story and what have we missed well the the importance of, of this story to people who are just trying to get into the industry, I think uh, these kind of stories about people founding a company and creating products and trying to make a go of it. Uh, I just think these are such important stories for anybody who's a, a student trying to figure out the industry and where they might fit in it and, and their own, their own um, ideals. Uh, you look at the giant companies and all that is just on such a vast scale. It's really hard to sort out that kind of thing in a really giant company with many different employees and different roles and marketing execs and, you know, people who don't even know the, <laughs> the background of their company and how it got started. So anyway, I love these little stories for that. I think all of them are important. Yeah, it's definitely definitely more of a human story for sure, or an elf story, I guess we should say. Uh, yeah, but, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, if yeah, if, if there's nothing else to share at the moment, uh, you know, hopefully we can talk to Larry a little bit more and, and get some insights from him. Uh -huh. But thanks for 
being willing to share a little bit about Rivendell and your experience with it. And, um, you know, it, I'm glad that this, this brand deserved a part two. They probably all deserve a part two and three and four, but, um, you know, this one for some reason has, has caught my attention, especially. So I'm glad we could talk, talk again. Yeah. About it. Um, for those who didn't get to watch the other one, um, check out the other episode with Don Wittenberger and Eric Hardy, who are in the middle of continue, you know, keeping that company running. So, uh, we'll link to that as well. So thanks again, Bruce. Appreciate all your help. And, uh, thanks for sharing, sharing your knowledge of the industry. You're sure welcome, Chase. Thanks for listening to the Highlander podcast. Subscribe and listen for more outdoor stories and content wherever podcasts are found on highlandermag.com and each Sunday at 4 p.m. on Aggie Radio, 92.3 FM in Cache Valley.